U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and over there is Stephen, the XO. Hey, Stephen! Hey there, everyone. So today, we are going to cover the German submarine U-505. And I know, I know, but Captain, it's German, not U.S. The reason why we're covering this one is because... One, it was captured by the U.S. Navy. Two, you can go see it right now in Chicago. How the heck did they get that in a... How big are the Chicago sewers? Well, this I never went into the sewers to see, but it's in the basement of a building. That just raises further questions. How big is their sink in the basement? You're going to have to go travel there and find out. Oh. Look, if I was able to get over there then you can definitely get over there. You're a lot closer than I am. While true, I'm contractually obligated to automatically be biased against Chicago. That's Wisconsin territory, dang it all. <laughs> so, shall we get into it? Let's cast off. So, this is the U-505. It is a German-type IXC submarine, and there will be German words in this episode... I do not speak German. It will probably be butchered. So I will apologize at the top to our German listeners and beg your forgiveness. This was built for the Germany's Kaiser Marine during World War II. And she was one of six submarines that were captured by the U.S. Navy. So let's go over her vital statistics real quick. She was ordered September 25th, 1939. The builder was Dushit Worf A.G. Hamburg Finkenwerder. Yard number was 297, whatever that means. Her keel was laid down June 12th, 1940. She was launched May 24th, 1941. She was commissioned August 26th of 1941. As I said before, she is a Type IXC submarine. She displaced 1,120 tons on the surface and 1,232 tons submerged. Her length was 251 feet 10 inches overall. Her pressure hull was 192 feet 9 inches. Her beam was 22 feet 2 inches overall. And her pressure hull was 14 feet 5 inches. Her height was 31 feet 6 inches, and she had a draft of 15 feet 5 inches. So, between the order being placed and this thing getting the uh, stamp of approval from the Nazi Navy was almost two years. Did it usually take him that long to get the ships rolling? One year. I thought you said commissioned in 41. She was laid down in 40. She was, she was uh, the only built in a year. She was okay. ordered in 39. Okay, so there was a bit of a delay between the order being placed and construction starting. Correct. Because of I see. the infighting with the German... Well, the infighting with the Nazi command. Between the Navy, the Air Force, the Army. You, I mean, we'll get more into this in World War II, but none of those guys got along. It was always a competition. I want the biggest battleships. Well, I want the biggest tanks. 
Well, I want a crap ton of Luftwaffe planes. And the German submarine corps, or the Kaiser Marines, only one man believed in them. He, he had to convince the rest of the Navy and the German high command to say, hey, the submarines are actually a good idea. He was fought tooth and nail every step of the way. He was lucky to get as many as he did. Really? Yes. Huh. That, I didn't know that. Like, I, I know Germany had a, a couple big battleships, like the Bismarck being the most well-known, and then after it's sinking, they're like, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll just forget about the Navy and just focus on using U-boats to harass, you know, supply shipping. Yeah. Uh, there's Germany with their infighting with military services. That was one of their downfalls. Not the only one, but a huge one, which helped the Allies out tremendously. So she was powered by diesel engines on the surface, putting out 3,200 kilowatts of power and 4,300 horsepower. Now, when she was underwater, she used electric engines. Then that put out 740 kilowatts and 990 horsepower. She had two shafts, two diesel engines, and two electric motors. Her speed on the surface was topped at 18.2 knots. And submerged, she was at 7.3 knots. She had a range of 13,450 nautical miles when she was on the surface and had a range of 64 nautical miles at four knots submerged. So unlike modern submarines that spend a lot of their time submerged, back in this time, I'm assuming on both sides of the war, a submarine primarily stayed on the surface until it spotted a potential target and then... I would guess they assumed that they saw them before the enemy saw the submarine between the submarine probably having a uh, lower profile on the horizon. Then they would submerge and start stalking it. Exactly. Yeah, now modern fleets, they're pretty much submerged all the time. Uh, unless they're pulling into port. Pulling into port, doing an unrep, or some other special operation there are submerged. Okay. Submarines in World War II, the U-boats and everything like that, they were surfaced most of the time. And yes, once they saw their victim, they would submerge. And it was hard to see them because they did have a very low profile and they could also lower that profile by filling the ballast tanks a little bit. Not fully submerged, but come partially submerged. And then still have air to be able to put into your diesel engines. And also they had, at least I think halfway through the war, that's when the um, the scuba was invented. The scuba, I think they're called scuba scoops, in which they would be able to actually be submerged at around periscope depth and have a pretty much what an air tube floating on the surface to be able to power their engines, their diesel engines, and also have breathable air so they could stay submerged oh. a little bit longer. Hmm. But that's halfway to three quarters of the way through the war, I believe. 
So she had a test depth of 750 feet. That's as far as they took it down to make sure she was safe. Anything below that was due to your own detriment. Break glass in case of emergency. Glass may become crushed. Right. She had a complement of 48 to 56 men. She was armed with six torpedo twos. Blah, twos. Torpedo twos, we come in two. <laughs> she was armed with six torpedo tubes, four in her bow and two in her stern. And they fired 21-inch torpedoes. She also had a 4.1-inch deck gun and about 180 rounds for that gun. She had a one-and-a-half-inch AA gun, and she also had a single twin flak cannon. Silly question. Silly answer. <laughs> Fair enough. Why stick AA guns on a submarine when, if you see an impending, you know, airplane, just close hatches and submerge? I'm pretty sure torpedoes can't go past a certain depth, and I don't think they put depth charges on uh, planes. One, aircraft were the biggest danger to U-boats. They did have anti-submarine weapons. Oh. Two, it takes time to submerge a boat. There is no crash diving in this day and age. And while you're diving, you are vulnerable. So if you're spotted by an aircraft before you're able to spot them, you have a better chance of surviving this encounter by sh trying to shoot it down than by attempting to submerge. Because that aircraft is already on an attack run. And I suppose third, assuming it's simply a reconnaissance plane, while it may not be able to sink you, a shot down reconnaissance plane can't report back to command your location. That too. A, a lot of times it would have been simpler just to shoot, try to shoot the plane down. All right. All right. So, about her design, the IXC submarines were a little bit larger than the original IXBs. A little bit more specific about her, about her diesel engines, she was powered by two man M nine V forty forty six supercharged four stroke nine cylinder diesel engines, and of course she could only use these while on the surface, and when she was Submerged, she was powered by two Simmons Shookit 2GU 345-34 double-acting electric motors. So, a question then from someone who isn't the most intimate with the operations of engines. Mm -hmm. Could the diesel engines not operate underwater? Like, I assume because of the air issue. Um, but because you need that space between where the fuel is you know, kind of sprayed into the cylinder before it's ignited. But were they worried about using up the air that the crew needed, you know, too fast for it to be practical, or...? Not only that, but where are you pumping that exhaust? Uh, I don't know, where does exhaust go on a, on a normal boat motor? In the air. Oh. I don't know why, just this entire time I thought it just went in the water. I mean, you could theoretically pump it into the water, but guess what's following you on the surface? Oh, a big old 
discoloration, screaming, Hey, everyone! I'm not saying it's a U-boat, but it's probably a U-boat. Drop depth charges here. Exactly. Okay, so... It was also quieter. Oh. Uh, diesels put out a lot of noise. Electric motors put out no noise. Okay, well, today I learned something about engines. Uh, all I really knew about diesel before this was you're paying top dollar for that fuel. You're also paying for reliability. Yes, yeah. Th those things will just keep on trucking. Yes, literally. Okay. <laughs> so, in short, diesel do not use underwater for noise, for safety of the crew, and because you don't want a diarrhea trail in the water leading directly to your submarine. And did you say quiet? I did not say quiet. Because we don't talk about the quiet. Because you can't hear the quiet. But submarines, they love the quiet. They survive on quiet. Alright, so... <laughs> if we ever go underwater, what you're telling me is, I can't blast my stereo. If we ever go underwater, first of all, our ship's not made to go underwater, so we're dead. <laughs> Second of all, don't fart and shut up. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> so let's see. The first man in command was Captain Lieutenant Alex Axel Olaf Luden Lowen, at which point he was relieved by Capitit Peter. Zesh in 42, and then in 43, Uber Lieutenant Zhu Paul Meyer. He took command for about two weeks. What changed in two weeks? We'll find out. <laughs> Fair enough. We're just going through the captains right now. And the final captain was Ubitz Harold Lange. And he was in command until she was captured in 44. She conducted 12 patrols, which for a U-boat is very successful. She sank eight ships in total, which had a combined total of 45,005 GRT or gross registered tons. Three American, two British, one Norwegian, one Dutch, and one Colombian. So her first patrol. She was assigned as a operational boat to the second U-boat flotilla, February 1st, 1942, after training exercises with the fourth U-boat flotilla. She began her first patrol from Kiel and was technically still undergoing training. So she circumnavigated the British Isles for 16 days and then docked in Lorient, which was occupied France. For this first patrol, she had no engagements, and she was also not attacked. So, just a lone U-boat, you know, circling the British Isles like a hungry shark. Well, she was part of a flotilla. Okay, so there were, there were other U-boats involved in that operation. Right, there were okay. 89 boats signed to this flotilla. 89 U-boats. Wow. Now, all of them weren't out at sea at one time. They would 
Some of them would be in the process of going to their assigned patrol. Some of them would be on their way back from patrol, and others would be in the yards getting fixed up. I mean, let's just assume it's a, you know, four-shift situation. I mean, that's still over 20 U-boats active in a flotilla. Right. Wolfpack indeed. I now understand why they have that nickname. Yes. So her second patrol was when she left Laureate. She was only there for eight days. So her her crew got about a week off. And she left for about 86 days. She went to the west coast of Africa, where she engaged her first vessels. She sank four ships on this patrol. The British Ben Moore, the Norwegian Siedov, the American West Ermo, and the Dutch Alpaca, which totaled 25,041 tons. But she was attacked by Allied aircraft in the middle of the Atlantic. But she suffered very little damage, probably because she got her AA guns up. What you looking up? Well, I, I couldn't remember if Norway was neutral or occupied by the Nazis in World War II. And either way, it was a, why would they attack a Norwegian ship? Probably because they're sending supplies to their enemies. Well, I'd, I'd imagine that. Ah, but a, a quick Google search did not yield any results, and I'm not going to dig into that. <laughs> <laughs> so, she begins her third patrol, June 1942, leaving the occupied French port of Lauriette, which was now her home port, I was going to say, I'm noticing a bit of a pattern here between patrols. There were a number of U-boat pens built in France. But France also shared the English Channel with their main enemy at the time, England. Mm Mm-hmm. Since they had pretty much ran rugshot over everybody else. I mean, it's closer to the Atlantic proper than Germany, you know. I think France has more coastline oh, yeah. than Germany. I mean, unless you're doing Mediterranean patrols, it's the most logical place that's, for lack of a better term, directly under Nazi control other than Italy. Oh, they attempted to do Mediterranean patrols. Oh, I, yeah, no. And like you said, an operational range of 13,000 miles, you said? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it isn't far-fetched just to go around the tip of Europe through uh, the Straits of Gibraltar and then, you know, swim around in the Mediterranean for a couple months and then make your way back to France or Italy if Mussolini's feeling benevolent. That's what you would think, but most U-boats that went to the Mediterranean never returned. <laughs> oh, no, that's, that's, that's great, actually. That's fantastic. I think actually only one ever returned. That is a story I'd love to hear, um, <laughs> but right now I'm just too happy, smiling ear to ear to hear that uh, U-boats that went to the Mediterranean had a tendency to stay in the Mediterranean. Yes. So, back to the U-505. She sank American ships, the Seathrush and Thomas McKean, and the Colombian ship Urias in the Caribbean. All three shipping vessels, I assume? 
Uh, well, actually, the Colombian ship was a sailing ship belonging to a Colombian diplomat. Wait. Yeah? So, that wasn't even a military target in the sense of it is a shipping vessel and probably has supplies. Like, it was literally just somebody's personal transport craft, more or less. And this allowed Colombia to declare war on Germany. <sighs> Germany? Didn't you learn from the Lusitania? No, they didn't. Or they wouldn't be in World War II in the first place. <sighs> anyway, after bringing Colombia into the war, she goes back to her home port. This was a 80-day patrol, and she was not attacked. So her fourth patrol, she went to the northern coast of South America. She leaves in October and sinks a British vessel, the Ocean Justice, off of Venezuela. And then a few days later, near Trinidad, she was actually surprised while on the surface by a patrol aircraft from Squadron 53 of the Royal Air Force. And they came in for a low-level attack. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> you, you got me. You got me. The AA guns are coming in clutch now. Yeah. So this patrol craft lands a 250-pound bomb directly on her deck, just above the waterline. How did it not sink? Well, this explosion killed one of the watch officers and wounded another in the conning tower, and it also tore the anti-aircraft gun off of its mounting and severely damaged the pressure hull. This aircraft made sure that they hit them. They came in so low, they were actually damaged by the fragmentation of the bomb's explosion, bringing it down. Yeah, British pilots going after ships were gutsy, borderline idiotic. But I mean that as a compliment. Pilots, they always seemed to make sure that they were hitting. Well, in this case, Flight Sergeant Ronald Silcock and his entire crew were killed. Oh, so the plane shot itself down with its own bomb? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that may have been a little too close, guys. Yeah. So, the damage to the sub, her engine room is now filling with water, and her pumps are inoperative. So, the captain, Zilsch, orders his crew to abandon ship. But the engineering staff, who was led by Chief Petty Officer Otto Frick, insisted on trying to save the ship. This is what the engineers do. They save their ships. It took two weeks, but the boat was made watertight. So, the captain shared my view of, well, this sub is just done. And the engineer's like, no, no, no. I still have two rolls of duct tape and a can-do attitude. It ain't over till the duct tape's gone. That's right. And two weeks later, she was underway again. She was limping badly, but she was underway again. <sighs> Insert German engineering joke here, if I'm reading the script right? 
you are, but you're not supposed to read the stuff that's in the ellipses. You're supposed to actually do it. Oh, uh, uh, V-dub, in the house, we get sub home. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, we can scratch that one. <laughs> oh, no, it's staying in. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so, it takes six months for her repairs to be completed. And then starts her fifth patrol. She leaves for only 13 days. She actually has to abort it. Because she was attacked by three British destroyers. Well, that escalated quickly. They stalked her for over 30 hours. How on earth do you manage to get past three? Like one or two? Yeah, you know, it's a game of cat and mouse, but if you play your cards right, you get out. Three? I feel like that's enough overlapping fields of sonar that you're just caught. Well, I mean, there's a number of things that you could try to do to do that. Going deep and running silent and just hoping that they get bored and leave. There's also just maneuvering around, being silent, just trying to get away from them. But I don't know how she did it exactly. Mm, even though she was captured, we don't have all the captain's logs. And even if we do, the captain may not have gone to the specifics. Well, I mean, after the capture, this was classified. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. But we'll, we'll get into her capture and all that. Yeah, I, I imagine that's around the final patrol, give or take. Yeah, you would be correct. <sighs> um, I'm sure there's still stuff from World War II that's still classified. Mm. I mean, I did find something about a moon laser in the uh, record halls, but, you know, the, the security guard said I couldn't take it out. It looked cool, though. Yeah, he shouldn't have let you in there in the first place. I get turned around. Yeah, well, we're going to have to kill him now. <laughs> oh, but Frank's nice. You should have thought about that before breaking into there. No. Now I'm sad. As you should be. Now, the U-505 was not badly damaged in this encounter with the three British destroyers. But she did return to France for repairs. Now, the next four patrols were only a couple days because of equipment failure, sabotage by French dock workers who worked for the Viva la Resistance, the French Resistance. They found sabotaged electrical and radar equipment. They found a hole deliberately drilled in the diesel fuel tank. Faulty welds. This happened so many times that she actually became the butt of the jokes at port. <laughs> oh, good on you, resistance fighters. Yeah, no, that's awesome. When returning from one of her aborted patrols, her crew found a sign painted where they were docking, reading, U-505's hunting ground. <laughs> I love it. Um, at this time, they were losing U-boats left and right. Right, this is 43, so this is yep. the downfall, start, starting with the downfall. U.S. has full involvement, like we're past that initial year of mustering and 
mm-hmm. you know, figuring out how we want to get involved. And now it's full on, you know, all right, I see your wolf packs and I raise you destroyer squadrons. Right. But because of all these heavy losses, the commander of the 505 heard another commander joking, quote, there is one commander who will always come back. Josh, which is the captain of U-505. You know, because... Right, I I just... (laughs) Uh, I mean, that's... That is a fantastic insult. It is. (laughs) You will always return home, and your country will be happy to see that U-505 has once again not even made it to the Atlantic proper. Because you idiots don't know how to keep saboteurs off your boat. Exactly. So, ten months later, she tries to depart for her tenth patrol in the Atlantic. She was in port for ten months? Trying to get in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. Oh, okay, so it was just a constant, like, she couldn't even be out for more than a day or two. Yeah, because of the sabotage. For ten months. Oh, remember, this was patrols five through nine that they tried to go on. Oh, <laughs> uh, at, at this point, I just, I feel like there needed to be a, you know, a punch card system for those saboteurs. Like, you know, keep us in port nine times, the 10th one's on the German army. I mean, that allowed them to survive 10 months longer than all of their compatriots. I, I suppose those sailors do owe the uh, resistance a, a debt of gratitude. Yeah, they do. Because on the 10th patrol, while it seems that they broke her run of bad luck and bad morale, it does not go good for them. British destroyers spot her east of the Azeros, October of 1943. Not long after she crosses the Bay of Biscay. And she was forced to submerge. And she endured a heavy, heavy, severely heavy death-charged attack. The captain, Jesh, goes into the control room, looks at all of his crew in the eye, puts a gun to his head and pulls the trigger. What the explicative remove because we try and keep this a, you know, show appropriate for all? Dude, you're the captain. Like, it is your job to keep morale up for your crew. Why would... If all seems lost, I mean, in the comfort of your own cabin or whatever, but in front of your crew? Right there on the bridge or control room. What the heck? Like, regardless of what side you are in a war, that you don't do that in front of your, you know, <laughs> those under your command. So, Paul Mayer takes command, and is able to successfully return to the 505 to port with minimal damage, and then was later absolved from all blame by the Kiger Kriegsmarine for this whole incident. Ah, yes. Can't be uh, an episode of the U.S. Navy History Podcast without a (laughs) military tribunal (laughs) court-martial for a foreign (laughs) ship. We we, we we might want to actually think of us doing a spinoff of just mili- naval military court-martials through history. Find <laughs> transcripts and, and actually put them out. Oh, uh, I mean, these guys were Nazis. We, we don't 
like them, but I am happy for him that he was absolved of all blame because he got his men home in a very, very bad situation. I don't think it's fair labeling these guys as Nazis when we don't know that for a fact. Most of the fighting men were not Nazis. They were just ordinary German men. Don't know how to respond to that one. (laughs) You're right, Captain. They fought for the Nazi regime. Is that fair? No, they fought for Germany. They were forced to fight for the Nazi regime. Hmm. You're told to fight by your country, you go fight. Otherwise, you get executed. And at this point in the war, Germany was going full-on conscription. Oh, yeah. Children were being conscripted. Right, right. In Berlin, the last front lines were manned by children when Russia came in. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's... Yeah. But I don't think it's fair to label them as Nazis unless we know for sure they were Nazis. They were on the wrong side of the war, but they weren't necessarily fighting for what Hitler and the High Command stood for. Exactly. All right. So back to Zisch. He is the only, at least that we know of, submariner during the war to commit suicide underwater in response to the stress of depth charging and prolonged depth charging at that. Do we know how long, like, it was going on at that point? Because, like, I know you said at one point in one of the previous patrols, it was a 30-hour game of cat and mouse. Mm -hmm. Cat and mouse is different from active explosions going on all around you for a prolonged period of time. Oh, so that 30 hours wasn't punctuated by constant, you know... Captain, that was a depth charge explosion, you know, 20 meters off our starboard. That one was 15. It's getting closer. Yeah, it's... Think of it more that the depth charging was like being on the field while artillery is raining down all around you. The cat and mouse is just chasing, trying to maneuver in place to be able to drop depth charges. Because no boat's Mm going to have 30 hours of depth charges that they could just keep dropping continuously. Not with that mindset. You know what? I will let you invent the depth charge boat. It's easy. We just remove all stores for food, all stores for fuel. We set up in the middle of the ocean, and if we see a boat go underwater relatively close to us, we just keep chucking them in that general direction. Eventually something hits. Okay. That's you. That's all you, buddy. (laughs) But now you know why Mayor only had two weeks. In command. He's, yeah. He was only the watch officer. He was the first watch officer, but he was only the watch officer. Was there not, um, you know, Captain XO, you know, or first mate, whatever title you want to use, then second mate, and then lieutenants? You would have to figure out the Germany submariner ranking structure. I assume watch up op- the first watch officer was probably the XO at the time. Or the XO was like, you know what? PTSD, I'm out. I'm just going to my bunk. I got to clean the captain's brains out of my hair. And it was a crude compliment of 56, I think you said. At a certain point, having excessive officers becomes unnecessary clutter. Yeah, there was only like, I believe only like five or six officers. The rest of the crew was enlisted. Right, and most of those officers were probably more like head of department, like 
you know, yeah. communications officer, engineer officer, gunnery officer. Exactly. So then we get to the 11th patrol. The new captain, Harold Lange. He sets out Christmas Day, 1943. And then comes back January 2nd. That's a really long time to, you know, get around the world and deliver presents for everyone. Oh, this is not Santa. This is Harold Lange of the German submarine Navy on board uh, a U-boat. I, I heard Christmas Day. I got excited. Hmm. Now, they did rescue 36 crew members from a torpedo boat that got sunk by British cruisers. That would have made the... I mean, good on them, but I'm sure the U-boat got even more cramped. That's why they headed back to port quickly. Because, yeah, 33 more men, they were probably on deck most of the time. They probably took them on board and then headed straight for France. This was while they were taking part in a wolf pact codenamed Gila. So, her last patrol. Number 12... You'd think she would have been okay on 12 and got captured on 13, but no, this is 12. So by this time, we had broken their code. Oh, we actually did that a lot earlier. Yeah. We knew where all the U-boats were operating, which was near Cape Verde at this time. So the U.S. dispatches Task Group 22.3 to this area which was a hunter-killer group commanded by Captain Daniel V. Gallery. Now, this task group had the escort aircraft carrier Guadalcanal and the destroyers Pillsbury, Pope, Flattery, Chailton, and Jenks, which was all under the command of Frederick S. Hall. They leave Norfolk in May of 44, and start looking for these U-boats in May. They use high-frequency direction-finding fixes, or the Huff-Duff, and they also use air and surface reconnaissance. We're going to have to go into that Huff-Duff thing when we get to World War II, because I've never heard of that. Well, it is uh, it's a radio direction finder. So pretty much just pointing in a direction and trying to scan for signals? It's a little bit more than that, but high frequency is what was used during that time because you can effectively communicate over long distances. So they were using the Huff Duff to catch enemy radios when they were transmitting. So they huffed and they duffed and they blew the wolf pack down. At least helped locate them. So more than likely there would have been a rotating antenna or solenoid mm -hmm. and then an operator sitting in there just listening for peaks and knolls in the signal. And that's how they would hone in on a high frequency radio being used. Ah, uh, so it wasn't so much just a radio scanner and like, wait, 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 that sounded like German. No, it's not a scanner. Okay. So, the task group makes sonar contact with the U-505 at 11.09 on June 4th of 1944, about 150 miles off the coast of Rio de Oro, and only 800 yards from Chaitlin's starboard bow. So, 
the escorts they quickly move towards U-505. And the Guadalcanal, she goes to flank speed in the opposite direction of U-505 and launches a Grumman 4F-4 Wildcat fighter to join a second Wildcat and a Avenger torpedo bomber that were already in the air doing screening patrols. This was a destroyer, right? The Guadalcanal was an escort carrier. Oh, okay, okay. So when the U-boat was detected, Chaitlin was so close that they could not use depth charges because they would not sink fast enough to get down to the U-boat. So she used her Hedgehog anti-submarine mortars before passing the submarine and turning to make a depth charge attack. One of the aircraft sighted the U-boat and fired into the water to mark her position while the Chaitlin drops her depth charges. This attack was very successful. Immediately after the detonation of all these charges, they spot a large oil slick. And the pilot radios, quote, You struck oil. Sub is surfacing. So, this engagement took seven minutes. So, th this just went off about, I mean, aside from the fact that they didn't see the U-boat until... She was almost right on top of the carrier. Um, but that went off about as perfectly as it could have. Yes, that was very, very well done. The U-boat surfaces less than 700 yards away from the destroyer, which immediately opens fire on it with all her weapons and then is joined by the other ships of the task force and also the two Wildcats. Everybody's firing at this thing. So I know we've just kind of skipped about 100 years into the future. Um, but with where we are in the timeline for our show, at this point, this is when somebody would be running up the white flag. World War II, ships surrendering, surrendering just wasn't a thing. It was a sink or be sunk situation, or did they surrender over the radio? A lot of times, the devastation and damage caused by their modern weapons at this time left no real chance of surrendering. The destructive force was so swift that if you're going to sink, you're going to sink. And then you hope to be rescued by the enemy when they come to check it out. Pretty much by the time it's... by the time you have decided to make that call, the damage is done, the ship's going down. Yeah. So... Lange, he thinks that the U-boat has been seriously damaged, and he orders his crew to abandon ship. They obey promptly. They were like, oh, yeah, we're sinking. We're getting the hell out of here. <laughs> Engineers, what the heck? What happened to, you know, two rolls of duct tape two weeks, and we can get this thing back home? Right. That did not happen this time. Probably because they were surrounded by destroyers all firing on them. That probably weren't going to sink themselves from their fire. Yeah. Now, when a U-boat crew, well, any U, any submarine crew, abandons ship, they're supposed to scuttle their boat. This crew failed to do so. They did open some valves, but they did not secure the engine. They left it running. And their rudder had been damaged by depth charges. So, the 
crew abandoned ship and the sub kept going and began circling clockwise at about seven knots. Well, now the U.S. Navy has a 200-odd-foot toy sub in the middle of uh, the Atlantic, right for the taken. Well, the CO of the Chetland sees the submarine coming towards his ship and thinks, oh crap, they are attacking. So he orders a torpedo to be fired at it. Thankfully, it missed. It went right over its bow. It's sir. How how does a torpedo go over the bow? Well, if it's a surface in front of the bow. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, I thought you meant like it just missed it by inches, man. Just inches. It it jumped over the submarine and back into the water. Yeah, the old jumping torpedo trick. Yeah. So at this time they realize, oh, it's not attacking. It's abandoned because they see all the Germans in the water on life rafts. So the Jenks and Chaitlin starts collecting the survivors. And then the Pillsbury sends an eight-man boarding party led by a Lieutenant Albert David onto the submarine. They find the body of Signalman First Class Gottfried Freischer on the deck, which was actually the only fatality of this entire battle. And they also found that the U-boat was deserted. So they took the charts and code books. They closed all those scuttling valves and they disarmed some demolition charges. So they started to do what they were supposed to do. They just never finished it. <laughs> they got a little too eager to swim in the Atlantic. Yeah. So they were able to stop the water from coming into the submarine and she stayed floating. And, of course, they also secured their engines so she would stop going around in circles. So, there was a historian and U-boat researcher named Derek Waller. He suspects that a German crewman, a guy named Ewald Felix, he actually foiled the scuttling attempt. He was like, I don't agree with this. This is not going to happen. My things are in here and I don't want to lose them. Maybe the Americans will give them back to me. Something like that. Pretty much a, if I foil the scuttling and then I come forward, because we're all going to be questioned for sure, that I was the one that handed them and, you know, slightly used, as Craigslist would say, U-boat. Maybe I can get a, a decent deal. Maybe, yeah. So... The Pillsbury tries to take this submarine in tow, but they did it wrong, and the submarine keeps colliding with her <laughs> and ends up flooding three of her compartments. That's, that's kind of funny. So a second boarding party from the Guadalcanal, the escort carrier, yeah, they rig a tow line from the carrier to the U-boat. And the chief engineer, Commander Earl Torsino, from the Guadalcanal, he joins the salvage party. He disconnects the submarine's diesels from the electric driving motors and leaving them clutched to the propeller shafts, which allowed that while the U-boat was under tow, the propellers windmilled, which allowed the shafts to turn the drive motors, which caused the mo drive motors to act as electrical generators, 
charging the batteries. Using the power from the batteries, they were able to pump the water out of U-505 and allowed her to blow out the ballast tanks, which were able to allow her to bring her up to surface trim, which caused her to stop bumping into them. And that's why you love engineers. <laughs> <laughs> so they captured them very close to French Morocco. But Casablanca was known to have a lot of German spies. So they needed to find a different port to bring the submarine to. So for three days, they towed this thing and transferred it to a fleet tug, the Abnaki. And they towed it to the Great Sound, which was the site of the U.S. Navy's naval operating base in Bermuda. So this submarine was towed 1,700 nautical miles. The Navy took 58 prisoners. Three of them were wounded, and they were interned at Camp Rustan near Rustan, Louisiana. And secrecy was very important to this mission, and the submarine's flag was kept under the personal care of the commander-in-chief of the Atlantic Fleet during the rest of the war. Why? So Germany didn't know we had the boat. I mean, did the submarine have a very specific flag or yeah every they they had all a lot of times a boat will have their own flags oh oh see i just it, know about unit, like you know the closet of flags at this point it's a unit flag oh uh, for, for lack of a better term it like you know like how uh fighter pilots like to you know have nose art on their aircraft things like that to, yeah okay okay all right, so the U.S. Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Ernest King, he was like, Captain Gallery, I'm considering court-martialing you. For, for what? For towing the U-505 instead of sinking it after capturing the code boats. Wouldn't you like to know how these things work? Remember, six were captured, so we had a good idea. But because they... Well... Because capturing it means that they have to hide it from spies and everything like that, which is more. And we already have to hide the crew so the spies wouldn't find out we had their code books. The, they had to separate the crewmen and isolating them from other POWs and deny them Red Cross benefits. The Kriegsmarine finally declares the crew dead and tells all of their families, hey, all your loved ones are dead. So, you know, all the wives are sad. They remarry. And then a few years later, 47, honey, I'm home. So uh, Lieutenant J.G. Albert David receives the Medal of Honor for leading the boarding party. This was actually the only time it was awarded to a sailor in the Atlantic Fleet in World War II. Torpedoes mate third class, Arthur W. Kenspiel, and radioman second class Stanley E. Widwack were the first two to follow David into the submarine, and they received the Navy Cross for it. Seaman first class Ernest James Beaver received the Silver Star, and Commander... Tercino receives the Legion of Merit. Captain Gallery, who actually 
thought up and executed this operation, he receives the Navy Distinguished Service Medal. And the task group was awarded the Presidential Unit Citation. The Admiral, who was in charge of the U.S. Atlantic Fleet, Royal E. Ingersoll, said that he cited the task group for outstanding performance during anti-submarine operations in the Eastern Atlantic. And he also said that it was, quote, a feat unprecedented in individual and group bravery, execution and accomplishment in the naval history of the United States. So the U-505 stayed in Bermuda and the intelligence officers and engineers did study it very, very closely. So to try to make the Germans think that she would sunk rather than the capture, she was repainted to look like a USS submarine to look like a U.S. submarine, and actually was renamed the USS Nemo. (laughs) I love it. At the end of the war in Europe, she was used to promote war bonds as part of the mighty 7th War Loan Drive. Because, you know, we were still fighting in the West. Fighting the Japanese. Yes. So anyone who bought one of these bonds could also board her and look at her. In June of 45, she went to New York City, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. And Captain Gallery was present for the opening of the exhibitation in Washington, D.C. So, as you can imagine, after the war, the Navy had no more use for this boat. Experts had thoroughly went through her. So she was moored as a derelict vessel in the Portsmouth Navy Yard. So the Navy decided to use her as a target for gunnery and torpedo practice until she sinks. But in 1946, Rear Admiral Gallery, who opposed this plan, told his brother, Father John Gallery, about it. And he contacted President Lennox lore of the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago to see if maybe they would want it. Now, the museum had actually already planned to display a submarine, and taking this submarine seemed ideal. So, the U.S. government donates the submarine to the museum in 1954, and Chicago residents actually raised $250,000 to transport it and put the boat in the basement. Okay, how? Well, I don't know how they got her into the basement. I just know she was in the basement because I was there last week, and we had to go down. (laughs) Like, I've been to Chicago. I've been to the museum area. Like, it's right there on the shore of Lake Michigan. I feel like it would have been easier just to, like, hey, this spot on the lake, this is for the museum. Because the museum's parking its U-boat here. Don't like it? Take it up with the U-boat. I... Chicago's weird. <laughs> yes, why Why keep the submarine in the water where it's happy instead of putting it in the basement? I feel like you have to build a building around that. So, the museum dedicates it on September 25th, 1954 as a permanent exhibit and a war memorial to all of the sailors who lost their lives in the First and Second Battle of the Atlantic. So, 
Just about every removable part had been stripped from the interior of the boat by the time she went to the museum, as you can imagine, because the engineers and smart men were in there just stripping it, finding out how it ticked. So, of course, that that makes her not in any condition to be an exhibit. So the museum director asked for replacements from the German manufacturers who had supplied the boat's original components and parts. And every single company supplied those parts for free. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is very cool. And actually, most of these companies also sent letters saying that they wanted her to be a credit to German technology. Which, I mean, it's a submarine. It's a credit to technology. Yeah. It it is a boat that wants to be underwater. Boats don't want to be underwater, usually. Yeah. So a reunion was held in 1964, 20 years after the capture of the ship, where Gallery returned to Lange a set of binoculars from the ship that had belonged to him. So pretty much a reunion of, you know, the the U-boat crew and those that were present for the capture? Yeah. So the Navy had removed the periscope and placed it in a water tank for research at its Arctic Submarine Laboratory in Point Lima, in Point Loma, California. And when they destroyed the lab in 2003, they found it. I guess they lost it for a while. How do you lose a periscope? That's not small. Somebody probably was like, oops, uh, I dented a little bit. Let's just put it under the water rug, make sure that nobody sees what I did. (laughs) But just going to misfile one pair of periscope lenses from World War II. But when they do find it, the Navy donates it to the museum so it could be displayed with the submarine. So it actually didn't go underground until 2004. So where was it displayed until then? I do not know. But the exterior had suffered a lot of damage from the weather, so they moved it inside, where they restored it and reopened it to the public in 2005. So it was again refurbished in 2019, restoring it closer to its original condition. And a special exhibit with a lot of artifacts from the sub was opened in the general admissions section of the museum. Also, they have the plastic machines and you can get a little U-boat. So that is, and as I said again, you can go see this U-boat right now at the science at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. It is. And it sounds like it's not going anywhere anytime soon. It is not. It is really cool. You can go inside it. It is It is awesome. It is fun to look at that stuff. So that is going to be it. This uh, ran a lot longer than I thought it was going to run. Yeah, when uh, you told me you wanted to talk about this, I thought, okay, it's a U-boat. It got captured. What what could have it possibly have done? What kind of history could this thing have? Turns out a lot. A lot of history in about four years. Three, actually. Technically, her history hasn't stopped. She's still in one piece. <laughs> that's that's fair. Uh, Chicago, I'm telling you, I have my eye on you. If uh, Lambeau Field suffers in a naval attack... I know what you did. And with that, let's pull back into port. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, anything you would like to uh, go out with, Exo? Well, we've been asking for it for months and months and months, and you guys are finally listening. We finally have a review. Navy Man 42 says, This is a great history podcast. It's very informative and fun to listen to. Five stars. Well, Navy Man 42, you're very awesome and fun to read from. If you guys would also like to write reviews and join the ranks of Navy Man 42, you know, we'd love to hear from you. You can also reach out to us at US Navy History Pod on Twitter. Or nope. US Navy <laughs> Dang Nabbit. <laughs> Don't go on vacation. I was doing I was doing good. I had it memorized, and then you went on vacation. USN History Pod. USN History Pod for Twitter. US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com to write the XO a letter saying you should know this shit by now. <laughs> and with that, we wish you fair winds and following seas, and we'll see you next week. Bye bye. Bye bye. US Naval History Podcast departing. Thank <laughs> you.